going to receive me at all. And I love how F.F. Bruce summed this up. He said, what they wanted, he would not give. What he offered, they would not receive. You see, the crowd was there to see Jesus do miracles. They wanted him to feed them. They wanted him to give them as their Messiah freedom from their Roman oppressors. And Jesus wanted to give them more than that, but they were going to have to let go of their wants, their desires, and receive him as is on his terms. And throughout this little series, I've said that there are two decisions we can make about Jesus. We either reject him or we accept him. There is no middle ground. But there are at least three ways to make those two decisions. And we've seen them in John chapter 6. We've already looked at one. We'll look at the other two this morning. The old saying goes, there's more than one way to skin a cat. And why in the world do we say that? And I grew up hunting and fishing, and I've never skinned a cat. You know, I don't know why, but, but we know it as a common adage. Well, there is more than one way to reject Christ. And I came across a very interesting one in the annals of history. Ivan the Great was the czar of Russia in the 15th century. And he unified all the warring tribes into one large empire, the Soviet Union. Ivan was a courageous fighter and a brilliant general who established peace across his nation. But you see, he was so busy with war and unifying his country that he didn't have a family. He said he didn't have time for a family. And his advisors were concerned about this, saying, Ivan, if something happens to you, you don't have any heirs, anyone to take the throne, and everything will crumble if, if you're not here. And so he said, look, I don't have time to go find a wife, but if you guys find a wife for me, then I'll marry her. Now, that's a step of faith right there. <laughs> so, you know, his advisors went out and they searched all of Europe and they finally found a suitable, beautiful young woman who was the daughter of the king of Greece. Now, obviously, the king of Greece thought this was a great idea. It was a great political move for him to be allied with one of the most powerful forces in that region. And so Ivan agreed to marry this young woman without ever meeting her. The only condition was that Ivan was going to have to convert be a member of the Greek Orthodox Church for the wedding to be recognized in Greece. And Ivan agreed to this. And so he set out to go through the catechism classes and completed those in record time. And so he set out for Athens to go and to, to formalize his, uh, his membership in the church to get his bride and, and get prepared for the wedding. And he took 500 of his best soldiers, his personal palace guard, traveled with him to go to Greece. Well, these men in his army heard what he was doing and what was taking place. And so they decided that they too wanted to be baptized into this church as a sign of allegiance and devotion to their leader whom they respected and admired in so many ways. So each soldier was assigned an individual priest that gave them kind of a catechism crash course, you know, in going through this. And so they completed that. So picture this, there were a thousand men 500 of them were the priests who had their tall hats and their flowing black robes. The other 500 were soldiers in their full battle regalia, their armor, their, their medals, their ribbons, all their awards. And they all waded out about waist deep into the Mediterranean Sea, a sea of men. And as they walked out, suddenly the king and the archbishop looked at this site and said, ah, we have a problem here. Because the church at that time didn't accept professional soldiers as church members. That they basically saw their profession in killing and being in wars as a violation of the commandment of Scripture and wouldn't receive them into membership, and this was going to be an issue. 
But the king and the archbishop got together and they reached a very simple solution in very short order. And here's what happened. As the priests were beginning to, to say the words they were saying as they were baptizing these soldiers who were there that day, just as they began to go into the water to kneel down to be baptized by immersion, which was the church's tradition, each soldier reached and unsheathed his sword, held it high above his head, and went into the water. Immersed was everything except his arm and his fighting sword. The unbaptized arm. You know, that is a picture of people seeking to follow Jesus, but wanting to keep just a little bit, just a part, maybe a couple of parts, a few compartments of their lives for themselves. And you see, that's something people have been desiring from Christianity since Jesus' day until now. I mean, just think about how many unbaptized arms there are here this morning. How many unbaptized wills do we have here today that are not fully, totally, and completely surrendered to the lordship and the leadership of Jesus Christ? How many unbaptized talents and skills and abilities are here that God wants to use to advance the gospel and spread, uh, spread the gospel and advance his kingdom? How many unbaptized talents and skills and abilities? How many unbaptized checkbooks and wallets and debit cards may be here today? How many unbaptized social activities or, or media diets or physical lives lacking self-control and, and self-discipline? What are the fruit of the Holy Spirit? And the issue isn't that of baptism. Don't, don't, don't hear me saying it. it's just baptizing their arm would have made the difference. The issue is of being fully surrendered in every area of our lives to Jesus Christ. That we empty ourselves of, of our wants, our desires, so that we can be filled with Christ. You see, some who claim to be disciples and followers of Jesus refuse to come to him on his terms. They refuse to receive him as is, which is ultimately a rejection of Christ as Savior and Lord. And we see this in John chapter 6, verse 60. We pick up the story. We wrap up this chapter. It says, when many of his disciples heard it. All right, what's the it here? Well, if you were here last week, Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. And people went, ooh, we're just not going to do that. But what Jesus was teaching them was just as you consume food and that food is digested and impacts and helps every part of your body providing nourishment and sustenance, so does placing your faith in Jesus Christ mean that you completely and totally allow him to influence and guide and direct every part of your life, your mind, your speech, what you allow yourself to hear what you say, what you do. Everything should be influenced by placing your faith and your trust in Christ and surrendering yourself to him. So when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? And if you have your own copy of God's word, you need to highlight this verse. It is the spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit who gives life. Speaking of eternal life, the flesh is no help at all. The flesh is no help at all. 
The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. You see, the disciples mentioned here aren't true believers who've had saving faith in Jesus Christ. They were the masses of people who were there for for signs and wonders and healing and food and deliverance from their enemies and hardships. And we often think of the disciples when we hear that term as the 12 that that followed Jesus. But the term actually, disciple actually means a follower or learner in general. And it's applied to the 12 because they were followers or learners of Jesus but it was applied to anyone who followed or learned from another. The Bible says that John the Baptist had disciples, as did the Pharisees and Paul. Even Moses in the New Testament, people said, we are disciples of Moses, and Moses had been dead for centuries, yet they called themselves Moses' disciples. And so Jesus offers eternal life through the Holy Spirit. That's why he said it's the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh is no help at all. Yet Jesus knew their hearts, and he knew that they weren't there because they wanted that kind of faith, that they had that kind of faith. He knew that they were there for signs and wonders, and so he challenged them. He said, okay, how about this? You want signs and wonders? What if I were to ascend back into heaven where I came from? Would you believe then? Well, guess what? Jesus did that in the book of Acts chapter 1. Did all people believe him then and thereafter? No, they haven't. He performed that sign, that wonder. Jesus is saying it's not about signs and wonders. It's about faith. It's about belief in me, a childlike faith as Jesus described it. And we see this several times throughout scripture that that Jesus is speaking to people who give an appearance of faith, but they don't have genuine, true, saving faith in him. And Jesus teaches this in several different ways, and we see it elsewhere in the New Testament. For, For example, a couple of places, and this isn't an exhaustive list, but Jesus tells a parable of the sower. He tells this parable of a guy who goes out and he sows seed and he does it in a strange fashion. The guy walks along and just goes, wee, wee, wee. You're going... That's not sowing. You, to sow, you dig and you put it down in, you cover it up and you water it. But this guy's just going out throwing seed randomly. So people would go, what kind of a sower is that? But Jesus used that parable to teach important spiritual truth. He said, some seed fell on the path and the birds came and they ate it up. Well, later Jesus is teaching what this parable really means. And he says, the, the seed is the word of God. And, and the word of God is proclaimed and people hear it, but Satan snatches it away and people aren't saved. They never respond to it. But Jesus said, some seed fell on the rocky soil. And this seed fell on the rocky soil, it sprang up, it took root, and it grew quickly, but it died shortly thereafter. And so Jesus is saying that those people really weren't saved, but why weren't they saved? Well, in teaching about the parable, Jesus says, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself. You see that? No root in himself. What did Jesus say about the flesh? It is no help at all. It's not about us and our roots. It's through the Holy Spirit and being rooted and grounded in him, not in ourselves. And so he goes on and he describes seed that then fell among the thorns. And it grew up, but the thorns choked it and killed it. They took the nourishment and the nutrients that it needed, and those plants died. And so what is it that Jesus says, or what are the thorns that either indicate that people aren't saved or that they 
aren't producing fruit for, for Christ's kingdom. Well, Jesus said, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Just a few minutes ago, Jeff shared about the rich young ruler who was faced with a clear call from Jesus to go uh, and get rid of his stuff and surrender himself completely to Christ, but he refused to do it. And then Jesus describes in another parable the, the story of the wheat and the weeds. And he talks about a farmer who sowed wheat, and then that night his enemy came and sowed weeds in that wheat. Well, the farmer's servants finally realized this and they said, well, we, and the farmer told them, well, you can't do anything because when you pull the weeds up, you're going to disturb the wheat as well. So let them both grow together. And at the harvest, we'll cut everything down and we'll separate out the wheat from the weeds at that time. And Jesus was telling us in the church, there are going to be unsaved persons among the saved saints of Jesus Christ. And we won't know the difference but at the time of judgment and harvest before Christ, he will make that determination and that distinction and that separation. And in his epistle, John writes about people walking away from Christ and his words are central in this discussion because Jesus isn't saying, nor am I saying that people are saved and then lose their salvation. As a matter of fact, in John 6, Jesus teaches the opposite of that. Look at verse 39 where he said, this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And in the epistle of John chapter two, verse 19, he says, they went out from us but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be plain that they all are not of us. You see, this has nothing to do with us making decisions and judgments about who's saved and who's not. That's something that only Jesus Christ can and will do. That's his decision to make, not ours. The point is there are people who reject the claims of Christ outright. Up front, no, we're not going to receive that. We saw them earlier in John chapter 6 uh, with the religious leaders. The rich young ruler is another person who turned and walked away. But another way to reject Christ uh, is what we've seen with these disciples, people who were there and who were giving the appearance and maybe even calling themselves disciples, but who weren't true disciples and followers of Christ. They looked saved, but they really weren't. Well, what I want you to see at the end here is the reaction that Jesus seeks from those who are genuinely saved. In verse 67, Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answers them, did I not choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the 12, was going to betray him. And so there we see the exact opposite reaction to what I just described. Some reject Christ outright, some seem appear to follow him, but then ultimately reject him. But notice what Peter says on behalf of the 12 who were actually 11 because even Jesus himself had one in his midst that the disciples didn't even recognize who wasn't a true follower at this time. But remember, we leave the decision about who's a follower and who's not up to Jesus. But Peter said, you have the words of eternal life and we have believed 
and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There it is. The progression of what I believe is the most important aspect of maturing and continuing in the Christian life. It is the Word of God which strengthens our belief in God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and then our experience that we come to know and are certain and assured of who God is and what he desires to do and wants to do in our lives. Let's talk about the word of God. Jesus said in John chapter eight, verse 31, to Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The most fundamental aspect of knowing and journeying with Christ is that we continue and remain in God's word. That's that's two-pronged approach. One is we study and we commit ourselves. We make this book a priority in our lives to knowing and studying and memorizing uh, and learning and then obeying this word. But a second aspect of the word is that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ because in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says that Jesus Christ is the word of God. He is God made flesh. He, he is God's word in action, an illustration, an object lesson of who God is and what God wants to teach us. And in John 14, Jesus says, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. He goes on to say, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So we see this emphasis on on the word and obedience to the word. And we see it all throughout scripture that Jesus reminds us that we are truly his followers, his disciples, when we obey him, when we commit ourselves to his word and his teachings. And I can't overstate the importance of true believers giving themselves to developing the personal habit of reading and studying God's word. And as we give ourselves to studying God's word, we begin to believe God's word more and more. We begin to believe the promises and claim the promises that we find in scripture. Our belief is strengthened. And Peter said, you have the words of eternal life And we have believed. There's that belief in those words and in Christ. And then that led to that confident belief where Peter said, and we have come to know. And the word know here is more than just knowledge or mental assent. It is a a settled, experiential, unshakable kind of knowing because we've experienced something firsthand. It's the difference between knowing that an electric fence will shock you because you understand that electricity flows through wire and knowing that an electric fence will shock you because you've grabbed one and have been shocked by an electric fence. Those are two different kinds of knowledge, are they not? How many of you know the second kind of knowledge? Been there, done that, you know, got the t-shirt. Yeah, you, you know those things because of your experience. And that's what Peter said. We know these things. We've experienced it in our personal lives. But the thing to remember is that that knowing comes after the word of God. It starts with the word of God through his word and through a relationship with Jesus, the word of God. And then our belief is strengthened. And then our emotions and our feelings come along after that in our experience. But all too often, people want to base their walk with Christ on their emotions and upon their feelings. But here's the thing. Nothing in our Christian lives should be driven by emotions. 
because Satan can so easily manipulate and control our emotions, causing us to reject or deny and disobey Christ instead of our emotions leading us to him. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that emotions are evil or wicked and we shouldn't have any emotions. We're emotional beings and emotions have a role and have a part. And just like anything, emotions have, have some great benefits, but there are also some, some detrimental uh, sides to that. And we don't want our emotions to be in the driver's seat in our walk with Christ. Just like we don't want our emotions to be in the driver's seat in deciding whether or not we want to be married, right? I mean, your commitment, uh, your love to your spouse isn't simply based on your feelings, is it? Because some days you don't feel very loving. You don't feel very uh, charitable toward your spouse. It was awesome. When I was a student pastor, I would sit with youth and we'd be talking about love and marriage and commitment and all this. And I would ask the students, I'd say, Tell me, give me a percentage, how much of love in a marriage relationship is based on feeling and how much is commitment? <laughs> the youth are like 90, 95% feeling. You've got to feel in love and you feel in love all the time. And the adults in the room would usually go, <laughs> they're kind of snickering, you know, and, and they may go, well, it's, you know, the charitable adults go, it's about a 50-50 commitment. And then you get some wisecracker in the back to go, yeah, it's about 90-10 on the commitment side of it, you know. I mean, if, if we were in and out of marriage as much as our feelings are up and down, we'd be married and divorced and remarried and divorced all the time. Wait a minute, that's our culture today. Maybe we're basing too much of our marriage on our feelings. You know, I, I don't know. Just That's a whole other sermon. But, but we don't put those in the driver's seat. Feelings are there. Our emotions are a part of it. But I love how Bill Bright describes this as it relates to us spiritually. He said, spiritually, our emotions are the caboose in a train. They're not the engine that pulls it. They're the caboose on the back end. The engine that drives our relationship and our walk with Christ is the word of God. The written word and our relationship with him and everything else follows along behind the word of God. And I spend a lot of time talking with parents uh, about this when their children make a profession of faith in Christ. We just had vacation Bible school and I visited and I talked with them about the importance of continuing to follow up and build uh, and, and encourage continuing growth in the life of their children spiritually. Because I've seen so many children and teenagers when they hit the teen years and God begins to move and work in their heart, they say, you know what? I, I don't feel like I'm saved. I don't feel like I'm the Christian I'm supposed to be. Therefore, I wasn't saved as a child because I've not been doing the right thing. Things. I don't feel like I'm a Christian. And so I go back and I walk with them through a childlike faith and what it means to know Christ as Savior and talk with them about the difference of maturing and growing in him. But so often I think parents miss that disconnect between the conversion experience of their child and that time that their faith is going to become their own. And I tell parents it's so important that you connect the dots and you reaffirm and remind your children of these things as they grow. Shelly and I celebrate the spiritual birthday of our kids every year. Uh, we've marked when they made their profession of faith and when they placed their faith in Christ. And so we, we do a little birthday celebration. We'll give them maybe a, a Bible or a devotional book or a prayer journal, a Christian music CD, something to help foster their spiritual growth in Christ. And we constantly talk about their decision to trust Christ and to be one of his children, that we're secure in him and we, we we're never going to lose that salvation. And that's what Peter's describing here is this continuing in Christ. And here's what happens when we continue in Christ and we give ourselves to the word of God and we seek after him, our belief is strengthened because one, we grow in our walk with Christ or two, here's what happens. If a person continues in their faith after their, their conversion experience, if they weren't truly saved and they didn't profess saving faith in Jesus Christ, they will become convicted of that 
because of the power of God's word in their lives. And they can rectify that. And they say, you know what? I didn't make that decision. I didn't fully trust in Christ and I need to make that decision. So they are saved. But so many persons make that decision. There's no discipleship. There's no follow-up. There's no process of growth in church. I take ownership in that, that so many churches have dropped the ball in helping people understand their salvation and grow in their salvation. And it is a huge task and responsibility for the church to help equip and give people the tools and the resources to continue that growing walk with Christ. But if a person appears to be saved, but hasn't truly been saved and they haven't immersed himself in, in, in the word and, and in their relationship with Christ, then they can have this false sense of hope and security about their salvation. And when troubles and persecution come, they fall away. That doesn't mean they lost their salvation. It means they never had it to begin with. And when worries of this world and deceitfulness of wealth, when it chokes it out, people didn't lose their salvation. They never had it to begin with. They're like the weeds planted in with the wheat within the church. And we don't know the difference. We don't see those things. Some people said they will stand before Christ and Jesus will tell them, depart from me, I knew you not. And they'll even say, but wait a minute, didn't I do all these things? And Jesus will say, I never knew you. And we see these people, you, you've met them, you've talked to them before. We have this whole conversation about losing salvation and not that say, well, I was saved and baptized when I was a child. Of course, they're a godless heathen living a pagan life right now. Say, so, yeah, but I was saved at this point right there. There's no fruit in their life. And we say, well, boy, it sure doesn't look like it. That's for Christ to determine. But that's one of those indications maybe that that person didn't follow through and they didn't remain in God's word and they needed to confirm that salvation or they really weren't saved. And so they needed that conviction, but they weren't there in God's word that God wanted to speak to them. And so I tell parents, it is so important for you to have your children connected to the, to the children and the teenage ministries, the student ministries in a church. And I, I believe that because when I was a student pastor, I read a survey and this thing changed my outlook uh, in life because it was my story. I read Christian young adults between the ages of 20 and 25 were surveyed. They were in church. They were growing in their walk with Christ. They were professed believers. And these individuals said that when they were in their teen years, 93% of them, 93% of these saved Christian young adults said there was a point in their teen years that was almost as significant as their conversion experience as a child. And that was my story. I was saved at the age of nine. I've never doubted that, that at that point, Jesus Christ saved my soul, uh, that I became one of his children. But when I was 14 years old at a church camp, God got a hold of my heart and said, Curtis, you're not where you need to be. You're not where I want you to be, and I want you to get serious about living your life for me. The trajectory of my spiritual life was totally changed because of that encounter with Jesus Christ at camp. It was no longer my parents' faith or the faith that my Sunday school teachers and my pastor were teaching. It became something I owned and I became responsible for. And I tell parents, you never know, you never know when that moment is going to be in the life of your child. It may be a weekend, week out Sunday. It could be today in Sunday school. It could be this Wednesday night at youth meeting as it takes place. It could be an Awana Wednesday night, a camp that's planned for this fall, a mission trip. We never know. So it's important that these children are there. They're connected and growing so that God can move and work in their life at that point. I believe it's important that we recapture rededication that we recapture rededication. And people say, well, the word rededication isn't in the Bible. And I say, well, you know what? Neither is ordination but we still do it, all right? So let me bust my chops over, over the word that's there, all right? The concept is still the same. And people say, well, if we'd stay dedicated, Jesus, we wouldn't need to be rededicated. Yeah, okay, your point? 
You know, I mean, that's part of what the journey means to become like Christ, is it not? That, that, we, that we grow, that we mature, that we have spiritual markers in our lives. I mean, if we were fully saved and transformed to the likeness of, of Jesus the instant we were saved, Jesus wouldn't have given us the second half of the Great Commission. We wouldn't have had to go and make disciples teaching them to obey everything and commanded because we'd already know it the instant that we're saved. It's a growth process. And we should mark and we should celebrate and we should be diligent in this growth process. We do it with our kids. I've got three kids. Our oldest child has a book with all the developmental stuff. And when he was born, how much he weighed, when he first rolled over, when he walked, when he talked, his first solid food. His, and all, we put all the stuff in there. Anna's is about halfway full. And Daniel's is probably in a box with a bow on it somewhere, right? Yes. And then how the progression goes with kids, you know, it's kind of different as you go through. Yes, we mark all these things. Anna hit a big milestone this summer with her big elevator flip-flops on. She's 54 inches now. She can go to the theme parks and ride all the big coasters. So we, we, we've been, you know, lighting King's Dominion up with all that. So, you know, all these, these markers that are there. But we need to mark and celebrate these spiritual milestones with our children because we should grow and mature. There should be points and and, uh, places in our life where we look back to and say, I met God there. God met me there, and this is what he did in my life, and this is how he grew me and matured me and challenged me in new ways. Peter did that in his own journey. You know, Peter walked with Christ. He denied Christ on the night of his betrayal and his arrest. What happens at the end of John's gospel? Jesus comes and he reinstates Peter, reminds him of his love and his forgiveness, and Peter goes on to become one of the, the great leaders of the early church. So we see this growth in this process that takes place. We need to grow in God's word. We need to grow in the Bible, our relationship with Christ, be emptied of ourselves so we can be filled with him. And so I want to challenge and invite you to hear this morning, if you've never given your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, to make that decision today, to surrender yourself to him. And I, in my just journey, in my speaking and teaching on stuff, I've kind of moved away from the word commitment because commitment kind of still leaves us in the driver's seat. You know, I'm going to commit to PTO this year. I'll commit to being a scout leader, commit to being a Sunday school teacher, you know, whatever that may be. We still ultimately make that decision. And I challenge people to let's start using the term, and I use it more often, of surrender. Let's surrender ourselves because when you surrender, you give things up. You lay down your rights and your desire and your ability to control that. You fully give yourself to someone or something else. So maybe God has spoken to your heart today and shown you that you need to rededicate or resurrender your life to him. Then I want to invite you to do that this morning. Our, our pastors will be available. Our altar is open and you can come and just speak directly to God and say, God, I need that. I need to grow. I want to receive you today as is. No changes, no unbaptized arm that I'm holding on to. Lord, everything that I am, everything that I have, everything that I hope to be, I want to surrender and give completely to you. That's the call that Jesus makes today. The choice is yours to accept or reject him, to receive him today as is. What decision will you make today? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these teachings of Jesus, Lord, his example, Lord, his testimony, and Father, just uh, his teaching in this chapter. And I pray today, Lord, that we would take and that we would heed these words and that we would apply them to our lives. Father, help us be fully surrendered, fully committed, and fully devoted to you. Lord, I pray that today that we would surrender ourselves completely, that we would hold nothing back for ourselves, but that we would give it all totally and completely to you. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we stand and begin our invitation. Pastors are available at the altars open. If God's spoken and you need to respond today, you come at this time.